0: One of the things that I like to tell people whenever they ask, um, you know, whenever I'm inviting someone to church, and one of the questions they inevitably ask sometimes is, well, what kind of music do you do? And I say, well, we do great music. We don't do, we don't do songs because they're old. We don't do songs because they're new. We do songs because they're great. And uh, we, I, I think that the songs we sang this morning is a, is a wonderful testament of that truth, and I'm so thankful to miss uh, Melissa, Miss Merlin, Logan, who worked so hard to put our worship services together. So I'm so thankful to each and every one of them. One of my favorite lines, and you know i don't I don't really consider myself a trekkie. I never really got into the show so much. Uh, but the movies i've I've really gotten into uh, over the years when I was a kid and and even still now to a certain extent. And, uh, and I cannot remember exactly which Star Trek movie it was, but I do remember it was the original crew. It was Captain Kirk and, and all of those guys. I do remember that they were having a, um, a entourage of Klingons in the Enterprise, and it was just one of those moments where it was like Jews and Samaritans eating together. I mean, it was just a, a real awkward dinner. And at one point, point, uh, somehow Shakespeare comes up, Hamlet or something like that, and one of the Klingon officers says, well, and this is my favorite line of all time, well, you've never truly read Shakespeare until you've read it in the original Klingon. (laughs) And you can just hear... The crew of the Enterprise just groan when that is said, and uh, the reason why I say that is because we're turning to the book of Titus this morning, chapter two, and we see here that Paul had left this young pastor. We say young; he was probably maybe in his thirties or forties, uh, maybe not as maybe not as young as we often think of when we think of young nowadays. But he was uh, he was a young pastor who was left one of Paul's. Proteges, we don't know as much about him as we know about Timothy, but we know that Titus was left on the island of Crete, and Crete was quite infamous during the time of, uh, of Jesus' day. Actually, spanning the entire Roman Empire, they were quite infamous because they had a, a, um, they had a tendency to take the myths and the legends of other nations, and they would say, oh, well, that happened here. For example, they claim that the real Mount Olympus was on Crete. They claim that Zeus, and to this day, there's a tourist attraction where you can go and see Zeus's grave. You can imagine how that went over with the Greeks. Um, There were even Jews who lived on the island and the island would hear some of the, the story of the Red Sea and stuff like that, and the Cretans would even uh, kind of adapt some of that. Oh, yeah, yeah, we remember when that happened. That happened right over there, you know? And and they just had a tendency of kind of incorporating everyone else's uh, legends and myths and even their religious things and stuff like that. And so the Cretans were known as liars. In fact, um, there's even we even have reference to that in uh, in the first chapter of Titus. It says that uh, one of the Cretans, the prophet of their own, says the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then Paul says in verse 13, "This testimony is true." I love that pastoral spirit there. So. Uh, <laughs> They, that's, that's what these people were known for. They were known for taking kind of the, the, the legends of other cultures and just incorporating it into their own and making it theirs. I think we as Christians can relate, can't we? I mean, look what the culture has done to a lot of our holy days. Look what they have done to a lot of our traditions the trend has kind of died down, but for a while, Easter was becoming like a second Christmas. Uh, they were even releasing uh, kind of Hallmark movies and, and major films about the Easter bunny and starting to make them like they do Santa Claus and stuff like that. That's kind of died down, but you still see kind of the, the, the gift-giving kind of commercialization of that uh, coming around. Wedding services. A lot of people don't even think of a wedding service as a worship service anymore. They think of it as completely commercialized, but I don't think that uh, anyone, anyone, anywhere that can this be more apparent than the holiday or shall we say the holy day of Christmas. Christmas has been completely commercialized by our culture you know, we say that the cathedral is the symbol of Christian history. I think if there were any symbol of American culture, it would be the shopping mall. It's the, they, the, 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 the excuse me, the cathedrals of our day are the shopping malls and the football stadiums. I mean, that just kind of seems to be the number one religions. And, and I've said this before, don't complain about that. Don't be surprised that lost people act like lost people. Don't be surprised that they are looking for something with meaning. They are looking for something that is memorable, that is important, and that they will latch on to stuff like this, and they will kind of add their own little meanings to that. Don't be surprised by that. Don't complain about it. Use it as an opportunity to have good gospel conversations with them. Don't, don't, get, don't make the mission field your battlefield. Don't do that. It is our mission field. But it does kind of bring about the question because so much of this culturalization has can come into the church if we're not careful. And so so the question is, what should Christians take from the holy day of Christmas? And I think there's no better summary of it than in Titus chapter two. And that's where we're going to be this morning if you want to follow along in the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 1184, Titus chapter 2, or 1184 in the Bible in the pew in front of you, and I think we will find no better explanation of what we are to take from the Christmas holiday than this. Beginning in verse 11, Paul tells Titus, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, that's Christmas right there, isn't it? That's the Christmas holiday right there. The grace of God has appeared in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And he is bringing salvation for all people. All people are invited to come and taste of the salvation that has come. But that grace doesn't remain in a manger. It does not remain in the lower part of a house or a cave or wherever it was that Mary was. I, I highly doubt it was a cave. But wherever she was laying the baby Jesus, he did not remain there. And neither does the grace of God. It continues on in verse, in verse 12. What does the grace of God do? In the salvation that it brought, what does it do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing, there's that word again, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. All people, every person without distinction and without exception, are invited to come and taste of the salvation that the grace of God has brought. It does not matter whether you are a king, it does not matter whether you are a slave. It does not matter if you are black, white, Asiatic, purple, green. Somebody asked me one time if we ever found uh, alien life, what would that mean for our faith? I I said that would mean that the church would build a spaceship and we'd put a mission colony out there. Because if there is other life out there, then Jesus died for them too. I highly doubt it, by the way. But anyway, but I did mention Star Trek, so I gotta get that in. Paul makes it clear that the grace of God is indeed needed by all people. All people needs it, and there is no one who, who is above that profound need in our life and coming into this grace, it does not leave us wet the way it found us. It does not stay in a manger. The culture does not mind a Jesus in a manger. The culture does not mind a little little baby boy wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a food trough. It does not mind that. What it does mind is a salvation that says that you are a sinner and you need salvation that is offered by the adult that that little baby became. I love little kittens. The problem is they become cats. Beloved, in the same way, our culture's issue, they don't mind little baby Jesus. They love that picture. The problem for them is little Jesus became a man and he lived a perfect life before God and he died on the cross. And if you wanna see the profundity of your need for salvation, if you want to see the depth of our sin, you need look no further than Jesus dying on the cross, but also if you want to see the profundity of God's love and the measure of his grace, you also need look no further than the cross. It is the perfect combination of God's justice that must be served by a holy God And his love and his mercy toward those whom he intends to save. And so this grace, it comes and it trains us or disciples us for this present age. And so the question is, how do we how do we respond to Christmas and how do we move on so that really we celebrate Christmas every single Sunday? We come together and we celebrate the incarnation of Christ and what he did for us. That's called the Lord's Day. Christmas is really no different. And so what does that mean for us? It trains us, it disciples us to do a few things that Paul tells Titus here. Number one, God's grace trains us to repent of sin God's grace trains us to repent of sin. Christ has come into this earth to bring us salvation. And beloved, that is not just going to heaven when we die. That is not all salvation is. If that was all it was, then by all means, pray a prayer, get your fire insurance, live the kind of life you want, eat, drink, and be merry. And when you die... You're taken care of. But that is not how the Bible pictures salvation. That is not the picture of salvation. That is not the life that God gives us. The life that he gives us teaches us, number one, to renounce Wrong actions. Look at it. What he says. He says here, the grace of God has appeared, training us, discipling us, to renounce ungodliness, and that—that that is any actions or anything that we do that is unlike God. It's a—it's a general term. In fact, some of your translations, I—I can't remember if it does or not. But one translation is impiety, or just simple ungodliness. It doesn't necessarily mean that the most evil actions on the world are involved here. It doesn't necessarily mean that. You know, uh, that's how a lot of people defend themselves. So uh, we'll start talking about sin, and they'll say, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I've never murdered anyone. Really, that's your first go-to? <laughs> that's a pretty low standard, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean if, if that's the standard, we never murdered anyone, great, we're all good. I mean, <laughs> that's... I mean, who can't can't live up to that? I've never cheated on my taxes. That one's a little harder. But still, I mean, most of us are pretty honest people, right? I've never done this. I've never done that. That's, That's how we often defend ourselves. But that's not all this term ungodliness is bringing to mind. You see, it's actually anything that we do without reference to God. It could simply mean living your life every single day as if God does not exist. And by the way, Christians do that. So many people today, they come to church, they worship, and then they live their lives like this practical atheism. And they, 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 they say they love Jesus, and yet their lives have absolutely, on the daily basis, no acknowledgement of him at all. And that's what salvation is training us to renounce, that, that yes, God is real, and yes, he does matter to our day to day lives. That it trains us to renounce that ungodliness, those wrong actions. You may have never murdered anyone. In fact, I I doubt that anyone in here has murdered anyone but did you pray this week? Did you reflect and meditate upon the scriptures and then intentionally apply them to your day? Did you thank the Lord? It it teaches us to renounce ungodliness, but also to renounce wrong desires. He goes on and says that uh, the renouncing of ungodliness and worldly passions. These are the driving seat of everything we do. Why do we sin? It's to get what we want. Or we sin because we don't get what we want. But either way, our desires, our heart is what is driving those actions. We do what we do because we want what we want. And salvation trains us not only to renounce the wrong actions, but it actually takes us back to the source, back to the heart, to renounce those worldly desires as well. And most of the English translations use the word passions to indicate how strong these desires can be. It can feel as though you really do have no control over them. It can feel like that. It can feel as though I have no choice but to act this way. It can seem as though uh, the things that we want or don't want can be very intense, but God's saving grace teaches us, trains us, entices us to know better. Look at Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. Paul says here that you should also, let me read it from back here. I've got some lights in my face. So you should also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He goes on, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to obey its passions. There's that word again. Skipping to verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Beloved, reflecting on Christ's life in the world and the beauty of his godly life causes us to desire to live a life that is like his, that is free from sin. And when we say that I have no control over this, what we are saying is that this thing, whatever it is, this thing that I want is more powerful than God's grace. But God says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We do have a choice. We do have the ability. So this year, let's make a new commitment to admire Christ through his word, through worship, through prayer. It has a transforming effect. And the more we desire him, the more our sinful desires will be replaced with the greater desire that we have for Christ. We talked about that last week, that the only way to get rid of a a desire, the only way to fix unholy and uncontrolled desires is to replace it with a greater desire. The only way to repair and resolve unjust love is to replace it with a greater love. You won't leave something for nothing. And so you've got to replace it with a greater love that will satisfy you to the very bottom. And so God's grace trains us to repent of sin, but it also trains us to reflect his character. Look at the rest of verse 12. He's training us, number one, to renounce. But then as you go on, it says, but also to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Again, salvation is not just heaven when you die. But it is changing us for this present age. It is changing us for now. And this is really kind of the reverse of what we just saw. Paul started with renouncing ungodly actions and then the desires that that drive them. And now he's going to begin going back upward. He says that grace, first of all, changes us inwardly. It changes us, it trains us to live self-controlled lives. This is an interesting word that is actually used a lot in the book of Titus and in the pastoral epistles, First and 2 Timothy, along with Titus, all written to pastors. In other words, it is, it is living in light of what we know to be true. We are not governed by by passions that kind of send us away one direction or the other, and we simply have no control over it. Self-control says that we live by what we know, not necessarily by what we feel. It is self-controlled. We gain victory over sin because we know we are able to in Christ. We are free in Christ. Christ. We are not slaves to our feelings or desires anymore, but we are free to live in a way that pleases Him, regardless of what we feel. Guys, I promise you, there are times that it will not feel good to do God's will. There are times it will not feel good to do the right thing, but it has to be done because it is right. Feeling does not make right. He says that he changes us inwardly, but he also changes us outwardly. It says that to live self-control and upright, that term is the same term as just, where we get the term justified from. In other words, it is to live righteously. And that is how we act toward others. It speaks of right behavior, that interchange that brings outward fruit. That's one of the things I love about. Uh, I can't remember if it was Luther or Calvin, but one of them said that faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. That inward change brings out outward fruit that, that the world sees. And so it's that, it's that outward change that how it influences to act differently in the world. And you know that you're moving in that direction when someone says of you, oh, he found religion. Oh, he found, he's doing something else now. My friends used to say, after I was saved for about a year, uh, one of them invited me to a party and one of, my, one of the guys says, oh, don't bother inviting him. He found religion. You know what? They, they noticed someone, something outwardly. Was it perfect? No, by no stretch. It still isn't perfect. But it's growing. And beloved, the question is not whether we are outwardly perfect. The question is, is are we increasing in godliness? Are we increasing in righteousness? Sometimes growing in holiness is a three-steps forward, two steps back process. That's okay. You know what? Sometimes it's a two-steps forward, three-steps back process. But that's okay. Because it's the process that matters. And you give up on that that 's the problem, and so it changes us outwardly, but it also changes us upwardly. Look, we see the exact opposite, where before it trains us to renounce ungodliness, now it trains us to live godly lives. It's, it's a life that acknowledges him, that, that he lives, that we become reverent toward him. We praise and worship him. All things become secondary to God's purposes and his glory in our lives. We are living in light of who God is and that he is the king. And to the best of our abilities, By the grace that is given and empowers us, we are living in a way that pleases him and acknowledges him in everything that we do. It's living in light that God is with us. That's the whole theme of Christmas, right? Is that God is with us. She shall bear a child and his name is Emmanuel. God with us. And so it trains us to live in such a way that we acknowledge the presence of God's, of, of God's son in our lives, that he is with us. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Our church is involved in the study of Matthew, have been for a couple years now. And that's one of the biggest themes in three, three major sections, three strategic locations. We see the theme of citizen kingship, excuse me, kingdom citizenship is that we live because Christ is with us. At the beginning, he says it at the middle, where, three or, where two or three are gathered, there I am with you. And then at the very end, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's, that's what kingdom citizenship is, is that we live with Christ, his presence in our lives. And that's what we've been studying in Matthew, and that's what we see here once again that he changes us to live godly. And why is this so important? Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 115 for a moment. Psalm 115. You all know I I use the Psalms in my daily prayers. I, uh, I kind of start with the day of the month and I kind of add 30 and you know my math skills. So on the 23rd, I ended up reading 115. But it was a divine appointment, I believe, because it's so relevant to what we're looking at here. He's talking about to, to Yahweh, Not to us, but to Yahweh gives the glory for the sake of his steadfast love and faithfulness. And he starts to talk about the idols of the age in verse four. He says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but they do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. What's the point of that? Verse 8 is the key. Look what he says those who make them, those idols, become like them. And so do all who trust in him. Beloved, here's the point we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. That's on the negative side. Let's look at the positive side. In 2 Corinthians chapter three. 2 Corinthians chapter three, beginning in verse 16. Paul says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, freedom to do what? Verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are becoming transformed. Into that same image. And notice the process here from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We become like who we worship. If you're worshiping the idols of the age, you will become like them. You'll have a very commercialistic Christmas, you'll get upset and angry because you didn't get the gifts you really wanted. You'll fight on Black Friday. It's kind of fun, but still you'll do it. You'll do all of those things. But if we're worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ, beholding him through his word, beholding him through worship, reflection, through prayer, we will become more like Jesus And that is the whole point. His salvation is in the process of transforming us all into his image. And that's why he came, because we cannot do that by ourselves. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us through our own way. We don't all sin the same ways. But we all know the struggle of sin far too well. I have counselees who tell me all the time, Randy, you just don't know how hard it is to struggle with what I'm struggling with. And you know what? They're right. I don't know that particular struggle. But I guarantee you, I am so familiar with the struggle with sin. And I may not struggle with the one that you struggle with, but I promise you, I've got my demons too. We all do. And that is why we come together. That's why it's not the same to worship on the lake on Sunday morning, assuming you're doing it anyway. I doubt it. That's why it's not the same to stay at home on Sunday morning and watch church on a computer screen On a phone screen. You know, you know, phone screens make terrible pastoral counselors. I'm just gonna throw that out there. You talk to them and talk to them, and they just sit there. They don't do anything. It's weird. Nothing can take the place of the body coming together. Old fashioned, yeah, but God designed it that way for a reason. And so we must have that. It trains us to repent. It trains us to reflect, and finally, God's grace will reunite us with Christ. At the very end, he says that, verses 13 and 14, he says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Where I want you to understand that this text is bookended by that word, appearance. In fact, if you mark in your Bibles, you might underline those two words. Because you and I right now, we are living in the in-between. We are living in the time from the time that Christ came the first time, which is what we're celebrating today. But Christ is coming a second time, and when he comes in the second time, it won't be on a manger, it will be on a white horse of conquering glory in which he will establish his kingdom on earth forever and ever, amen. And right now, you and I are in between those two great appearings. And right now, we live on a fallen world, but we are saved. Right now, we are forgiven of our sins, and yet we are still growing in righteousness. One of the ways that theologians say this is that it is the already not yet tension, and that we are already saved. We are already justified, but we're not experiencing the fullness of those blessings yet. Christ is king. He is reigning uh, over the earth, but we're not seeing necessarily the evidence of that yet. Christ's kingdom is inaugurated. It has begun, but it is not consummated. It is not completed yet, but it will be one day. And we're living in the in-between. We are the church in the wilderness. We are not the church in the promised land. We are the church militant. We are not the church triumphant. And so, because of that, in verse 13, we are eagerly waiting for his personal coming. Notice how Paul words this. I can never preach this text without mentioning this. Because he says, The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Oh, what a phrase! What a phrase! That would be just like if I were introducing you, we have some guests here this morning, and if, I, and if I brought you in giving you a tour of the church and I said, this is the worship center and auditorium of our church. Do you see that, that construction I used? The worship center and auditorium. I'm talking about the same room, right? And so in the same way, when Paul says here that we're waiting for the, for the coming of our great God and Savior, he's talking about one person Jesus Christ and that is an amazing statement of his deity that Christ is that Christ is God and not only that Christ is what makes heaven heaven you're not going to have heaven without Christ you can't have heaven without Christ heaven is not the streets of gold It's not the mansions on the hilltop. It's not the rooms in our father's house. It's not all of those things. All of those things are just kind of the fringe benefits. They're just kind of the things that, you know, they're just kind of there. But what makes heaven heaven is that Jesus is there and that when he comes again, we will be reunited with Jesus. You know what? When I see Jesus face to face, it's not even going to occur to me that I am standing on a street made of pure gold. I won't even notice. I love, um, I have a, an acquaintance named uh, Justin Peters. Some, some of you know him. Uh, he has a YouTube channel. He talks about, um, he talks about uh, the Word of Faith movement. He's a, he's a, a critic um, of them, not of Christianity. He's a very biblical Christian who uh, talks about all of the troubles with that movement. And, uh, but uh, what you may not know from the videos is that he has cerebral palsy. He cannot walk. Without a walker, he cannot, he can't, you know, he has to get around in a scooter. And uh, and one of the things he says is that, when it, but beloved, when I get to heaven, of course I'm gonna walk. I'm going to run but you know what? My eyes are gonna be so focused on Jesus Christ, it's not, even, it's not even going to occur to me that I am standing on my legs. It's not even going to occur to me that I am walking, running toward my Savior. That's not even going to come to mind because I'm gonna be so focused on running into the arms of my beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Can you imagine heaven without Jesus? Jesus. And you've got a wrong view of heaven, my friend. A very materialistic version of heaven. We eagerly await for our savior, but we also eagerly await our perfected salvation. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, purified for himself, a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. The process he began when he saved us. You see, in this text, we have the entirety of salvation. When Christ justified us, he saved us from the penalty of sin. As Christ sanctifies us, as he makes us holy, he saves us from the power of sin in our lives. And one day when Christ brings us home, he will glorify us, at which point he will save us from the very presence of sin. So are you saved? Yes. Are you being saved? Yes. Will you be saved? Yes. We have been saved. We are being saved. One day we will be saved. Because Christ has saved us from the penalty. He is saving us now from the power of sin. And one day he will save us from the very presence of sin. In our lives, beloved, the ultimate goal of our salvation is that Christ will purify Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good works. See, when we think of waiting today, we think of the waiting room. I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting in a waiting room, just kind of waiting around, not really doing anything, and 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 we all do it. What do we inevitably do? We pick up our phone and we start punching away on the screen. My particular one is solitaire. I don't know what your demon is. But uh, we just punch away and we do whatever. And that's what we often think of when we often think of waiting. That's, that's not what the Bible is talking about when it talks about waiting. In fact, that's actually what the Bible calls idleness. What it talks about when we talk about waiting is preparing to see our God. Preparing ourselves like those like those uh, young ladies in the parable who did not have oil for their lamp, they were unprepared, they were idle. Just like, just like in Isaiah 40, those who wait upon the Lord, they're not just, they're not just sitting in their barker lounge or snow, they're, they're, their strength is being renewed and they are running and not getting tired. The Bible idea of preparing for our Lord is pursuing in eager expectation the day that he will come. And until he does, we pursue him to know him better. I had a family member who, he was on his last, um, in his last days, obviously. He was placed into hospice care and The family asked the nurse, they said, how long will it be? And of course, no one can answer that. We were estimating probably about two or three days. But the nurse said something funny. She said, is he a devout Christian? And the family said, yes. And she said, then it's usually quicker. Because you see, the ones who don't know Christ are trying to hang on to this world. and They're fighting it as long as they can. But for the ones, and this is her exact words, but for the ones who know Christ, they are going home to see an old friend. And that was just so powerful to hear. And he was there for a couple weeks and then he passed away. And my question to you, beloved, is we don't know when that day will come for us and we don't have a whole lot of vote over how it happens in our lives. We don't just have a whole lot of say over that. So my question is, is are you preparing right now? Are you getting ready for the day you will meet your Savior, your King, your Lord? That is what this life is all about is making ready to be in the presence of our Lord. I heard a great quote from a preacher that I admire this week. His name is Steve Lawson. Some of you know him. Steve Lawson said that Christ did not come to create a holiday. He came to save us from sin, death, and hell. And that is what we celebrate today. That is what we celebrate at Christmas. If you do not know Christ, beloved, you can celebrate, you can celebrate with the American traditions of Christmas, but if you do not know Christ, you are missing the point. You're missing the whole thing. You're reading Shakespeare and its original Klingon. You're missing the point. You've got it wrong. But you can get it right this morning. By the very fact that you are here, we said that the invitation begins the moment you walked into this building. Beloved, if you are here this morning listening to this message, you are invited to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Not one of you is excluded from that invitation. Not one of you is so sinful that he cannot forgive you. Not one of you have gone so far where he cannot find you. Not one of you have done so much that his grace cannot overcome it. And not one of you are so lost, so broken that he cannot put you back together again. And so will you come to him this morning? Don't don't risk another year. You have no idea if you'll be here next year or not. Don't risk another year. Surrender to Christ today. Trust him completely as your savior. Submit to him as your Lord, and he will save you to the othermost. He will save you from the penalty of sin. He will begin the process of saving you from the power of sin in your life. And one day when he comes again, he will save you from the very presence of sin itself as you are remade into his perfect image. Don't risk another year. Paul says in another place, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Don't let Christmas just be a sentimental time filled with tradition and nothing more. Let it be the beginning of your life eternal in Christ. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your love for us and what all this season represents. And if there is one here this morning who does not know Christ, they, they, they follow the American traditions, they follow the gift-giving and, and the warmth, the laughter, the singing, perhaps some of the great old hymns of such incredible theology as some of their favorite Christmas songs and yet they've never thought about what the words are actually teaching. Lord, for that person this morning, I lift my voice and my heart to them and I beg you, please, break through to their hearts and help them to see their need for a savior. Lord, if there's one here this morning that they have already been saved and yet they have not been in the process of becoming holy they're living as if salvation is really nothing more than heaven when we die beloved Lord that's not salvation and I pray that you would first of all help them to help them to ensure that they are truly saved But if they are, Lord, I pray that you will give them a renewed sense of the need for holiness in their life. And Father, there may be some here who will not be here next year. And for those, I pray that, Lord, you know the number of our days. You know the time you have given us. Teach us to number our days and prepare an eager expectation for the arrival of Jesus Christ, no longer in a manger, no longer in a place for animals, but coming on a white horse of conquering in which he will set up his kingdom once and for all. He will judge the living and the dead. And for those who know Christ by grace alone, Through faith alone, Lord, they will enter into his kingdom forever. For the ones who cannot say that, may they come today and receive the greatest gift of all, the only gift that matters this season, the only gift that offers eternal satisfaction, the gift of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing just a quick verse of him. I'm just going to invite you to bow your heads for a moment, reflect on what's been said, and just reflect on where you are in your heart and in your life. Have you missed the point of this year? Have you missed the point of this season? Maybe you're excited for it for all the wrong reasons. I invite you today to set yourself apart Give yourself to Christ and become his alone as our musicians play.